Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Yeah, I think at this point of his letter, the Apostle John knew that his readers, his audience, they were ripe for feelings of condemnation. You know, he had been writing to them about tests for the legitimacy of their Christian faith. Do I believe in the biblical Jesus? Do I obey the commandments of God? And do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? And they may have looked into their own lives and felt little confidence, especially about the way that they had loved others in the church. And I think many of us can relate. You know, last week we looked at the verses before these, and we talked about how to love uh, our fellow Christians. And I'm fairly certain that there were hardly any of us, if any of us at all, who walked out of here last week thinking to ourselves, well, at least I'm nailing it when it comes to that area of my life. You know, there might be some other things that I need to grow in, but when it comes to loving other Christians, Nate, you know, Jesus laid down his life and so do I. You know, I, d- I doubt that any of us feel that way. It's, it's easy, especially when thinking about the subject of loving other people, for our hearts to condemn us. Our heart might preach a message that sounds like this, saying, you've hardly laid down your life for others. You've been very unloving. Remember how you treated so-and-so. Think about how you feel about him or remember what you did to her. And this exhortation from John and Jesus to love one another, though it always resonates with our hearts and we say yes and amen, we should be loving each other, it oftentimes is very complicated to us. And questions begin pouring maybe out of our mouths, but at least begin circulating within our minds. We might ask questions like, How can I, practically speaking, show my love to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Where is the time for me to actually love? What about difficult people that are hard to love? How can I love my spiritual siblings and still have time for all my regular life responsibilities? Or how can I resolve conflict with someone in the church? Or maybe this one, just straightforwardly, if you're honest enough, what if I just don't like them? You know, when we we think of these questions, when confronted with the exhortation that we should be loving one another. Now, the Bible provides answers to many of these questions. And the Spirit, at different moments of our lives, will provide other answers to these questions. But still, some questions are left unresolved. And in that space, the unresolved question, the I don't know what to do, our heart will often enter into that space and begin to condemn us about our lack of love and tell us that we aren't doing love correctly. And John knew this, so he's gonna help us today by giving us God's thoughts on the matter. So in our passage today, we're gonna learn a few things. First of all, we're going to learn how to deal with a condemned heart. Secondly, we're going to look at the results of a life that is free of condemnation and then see a basic description 
of that life. So first, let's consider, number one, how to deal with a condemned heart. I'd like to read those verses again because they're very important. Verse 19 and 20, if you look in 1 John chapter 3, and we'll put it on the screen for you as well. John writes and says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Here, John tells us in verse 19 that we can know you know, as our heart is condemning, we can actually have a knowledge that we belong to the Lord. And sometimes reassurance is exactly what our heart needs. We need to know and believe that we're God's children. But like I said, when those three tests come around, do you believe in the real Jesus? Are you obeying the Lord? And do you love his people? Sometimes our heart rises up and begins to condemn us. So how can I deal with the condemned heart when it occurs. Seems that there are three things that John wants us to say, and I don't have them on the screen, but I'll say them to you if you want to write them down, or you can get them online with the notes that I've posted there. Number one, this is this is the first thing that we should be able to say that will help us climb out of a condemned heart. And, I, and my prayer as a pastor for you is that you'll be able to say these three things, because I think if you're a legitimate Christian, you can say these things. Thing number one is this: say this, God has put love in my heart. Say that, God has put love in my heart. I didn't mean for you to say it out loud, but that was nice of you. It's kind of an awkward moment, I like that. Maybe that's what we'll do. Let's say it out loud. Number one, God put love in my heart. I like that. Should have thought of that earlier. Okay, now what John is doing here in the passage is before he looks forward and tells us how to deal with a condemned heart, he tells us to look backward. That's why he says in verse 19, by this we shall know. In verse 18, he said we should love in, in deed and in truth. And the point that he's making here is that we can look back, if we're legitimate Christians, into our life and history and realize even if I'm loving imperfectly today, there have been times where the Lord has put love in my heart for his people in the past. And in looking back on all of that, we are able to say that the very desire to love, at least historically, is evidence of God's work in our lives, that he was the one who put that love in our hearts. Look, none of us have loved with the infinite perfection that Jesus loved or loves, but there have been moments that legitimate believers can look at and say, I loved in that moment. And if we're honest, we can recall those times when love flowed from our lives and from our actions. Sometimes it's very deep within, but we know that we care for God's people. Even if our love today is not ultra evident, we can look back on our lives and realize that God has done a work in our lives, at least in the past. I think parents a lot of times understand the concept that I'm talking about today. You know, when a baby is born, a lot of parents discover love's ability to multiply, oftentimes right at the very beginning. You know, that baby comes, and there you are in the hospital, and you, your heart begins to fill with a love and a care, a concern for this human life. You realize that you have been radically altered, that you'll never be the same. But then, maybe one day, maybe 
14 years later or so, just to pick a random number, (laughs) that same little baby is now grown and begins talking back to you. And perhaps the way you respond is not in a loving way, but with anger. Your flesh begins to take over and control your mouth and control your heart. And your response to them in that moment is anything but loving. And then in that moment, your heart begins to condemn you. Do you really care about this child? Do you really love this child? How could you treat them in that way? But then you recall the moment of their birth. You realized that in general, you've been laying down your life for this human being. You know that even though you were unloving in your action in that moment, historically, you have a love for this child. You may have behaved unlovingly in a moment, but your heart's general trajectory is one of love. And I think that true believers in Jesus can say something very similar because it's God who put love in their hearts for other Christians. And even if they've wandered from that love for a season of their lives, true believers can recall the first moments where love for other Christians began to fill their hearts. I know for me, it was an introduction to love for God's people in those first few months of my life in Christ. So believers look back and know that God has changed them. He's given them a love for other people. It doesn't mean we're always going to express it perfectly. It will often be lacking. But if we're honest, when we look backward, we know that it's there. So that's the first thing. God has put love in my heart. I know that about the Lord. But there's a greater thing that we can say. Here's the second one. You guys want to say it out loud? Let's do it again. God is greater than my heart is number two. So God is greater than my heart. I really like this. Maybe I'll start doing this. It'd be really fun to have a really ultra long point and try to get you guys to say that. Okay, here, this concept that God is greater than my heart, notice also that John looks forward in the passage, not just backward to our history But he realized that there'd be times, even when we look backward, that our heart would still condemn us, sometimes even because we've looked backward. And in those times, we would feel rotten because we'd have a hard time confessing that God has put his love in our hearts. And in that condemned moment, we feel like anything but a loving person. You see, it's obvious, you know, Jesus set a really high standard, didn't he? You know, we want to love like him, lay down our lives like him, but his agape love, it's often not our practice. You know, we're more of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of people, naturally. And other translations describe what John is saying in this phrase that our hearts would still condemn us really well. Some translations say it like this, our heart may judge us, or even if we feel guilty, or debilitating self-criticism even when there is something to it. The picture that John has in mind is that of a courtroom. There's the accused, you and me. There's the accuser, our hearts. And there's a great defender, God himself. God is the defender. And what John is saying is that his verdict, the thing that he says, is greater than whatever our hearts say about us. But oftentimes our hearts like to bully us and say things about us that just aren't true. A friend of mine recently told a story that was just really cool about his dad. 
And he said when he was a little boy and he was in kindergarten, he went to school and some of the older boys in school, the fourth and fifth grade boys, they would tease him and his friends, chase them, intimidate them, you know, and all of that. And he went home from school one day and he was really sad about it. And his dad asked him what was wrong. And so he told his dad the story, you know, this is what's happening at school. And his dad was a real action-oriented kind of guy. So the next morning, he went to school with his son. And he took him by the hand, and he went and opened the door, mid-classroom session of every fourth and fifth grade class there on campus. And he asked his son, do you see any of them here? And when he found some of these guys that were bullying his son, he just looked at them, and he was a real big, strong kind of guy. And he just pointed at them and said, do not talk to my son anymore or his friends. And from that day forward, my friend had a very peaceful kindergarten experience. <laughs> I think this is a great picture of what God wants to do with our hearts. Our hearts so often are like, like a little bully that terrorizes us or argues with us or slings accusations at us. It will punish us with its shouts of condemnation. But God is greater than my heart. He's greater than your heart. He's greater than our hearts. He's greater than our hearts because he's never wrong. You see, our hearts are often in error. Our hearts often preach an inaccurate message, but nothing that God says is untrue. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? And so often, this heart preaches things that are untrue, but God is greater than our hearts because he's never wrong. And he's greater than our hearts because he's long-suffering. Our hearts are so impatient. We, they demand perfection. They demand a lot of us, but here comes God into our lives. He's gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He is long-suffering even when our hearts are not. And God is greater than our hearts because he atones for our sins. You see, our hearts, all they can do is bring up sin, but they can never cleanse from sin. They can never atone for sin. Self-atonement is impossible. But God, by the death of his son, makes us new. He is greater than our hearts. And when your heart condemns you, telling you you're a terrible Christian, that you're unloving and all of that, you must remember that God is greater than your heart. You have to remember the woman in the Gospels that was caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus, after all the other accusers left, said to her, neither do I condemn you, and from now on, go and sin no more. You have to remember the woman at the well that Jesus met outside of Samaria, how she'd been divorced five times and was cohabitating with a sixth man. And Jesus told her that if she drank of the living water that he could provide, that she would never thirst again, and she became a true convert that day. You have to remember the Luke 7 sinful woman, likely a phrase meaning a prostitute, and how she wept over Jesus because of her forgiveness. Jesus said that her sins, which were many, were forgiven which is why she loved him so much. Jesus forgave all of those women that I just mentioned, and if their heart began to condemn them, their heart would be in error. Jesus owned them. They belonged to him. But so often our hearts are inaccurate. 
When I go running, you know, I wear a, a GPS watch like a lot of runners do, you know, and it will keep track of how fast I'm going and how far I've gone and all of that. And they're very accurate, you know, in this day and age. But sometimes if I'm running through a dense forest or I'm running through a tunnel, uh, the watch will lose its connection to the satellite. And so it'll start showing readings that I know are inaccurate. Sometimes it'll tell me while I'm running that I'm not moving at all. And then sometimes it'll tell me that I'm breaking a world record, you know, as, as I'm going. And I know neither of those things are true. In those moments, I realize that the watch cannot tell me the truth. I can't trust its information. And there are moments when the dense forest or the tunnel of condemnation from our hearts begins to arise. And in those seasons, we can't listen to our hearts. We have to trust God who is greater than our hearts. We have to listen to what he says about us in those moments. But here's the third thing that we can say. God knows more than my heart. Let's say it out loud together. God knows more than my heart. Okay, finally, in dealing with a condemned heart, there come moments where we just have to say, God knows more than my heart. Look at how John said it in verse 20. He said, God is greater than our heart and knows everything. This means that God knows the secrets of our hearts, our secret motives, our deepest wishes and desires. He sees the true us, even when our heart can't see the true us. A good example of this is Peter. Remember Peter, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Peter denied Jesus three times. In the courtyard of the high priest, by a roaring fire, Peter swore and said, I don't know the man after he'd told Jesus that he would never deny him. I think in that moment when the rooster crowed the second time and Peter made eye contact with Jesus and went out and wept bitterly, I think what he th thought he was discovering in that moment was his true self. I think he thought that the walls of who he thought he was had now crumbled and now he was seeing the real Peter. And the real Peter was a failure, a backstabber, a betrayer, his heart had spoken. This is who you are, man. But Jesus looked past even that, and he saw the true Peter. Jesus knows everything, he's greater than our heart. So after his resurrection, he built another fire and he inv invited Peter to come next to it. And just as Peter had denied Jesus three times, three times Jesus asked Peter the question, do you love me more than these? And Peter shuffling said, Lord, you know that I love you. Now there's some nuances to the story that are beautiful, but for our purposes, I want you to notice that Jesus saw something wonderful in Peter. He saw a world changer. He saw an evangelist. He saw a courageous messenger for Christ. Peter couldn't see those things, but Jesus could see those things. And so Jesus told Peter, feed my lambs, Tend my sheep, feed my sheep. You see, this is the point that I'm trying to make. God knows you better than you know yourself. He sees what you could be, what you're called to be, what you've been redeemed to become. He sees your truest intention, your innermost heart's desire. He sees the best intentions within you, the desires that the, of the new nature that he's put inside of you. He knows all things. He knows more 
than your heart. Now, these steps can help us climb out of condemnation when our hearts begin to condemn us, to say, God, put love in my heart. God is greater than my heart, and God knows more than my heart. Okay, once a person, though, has gone through that step and has, through the truth of who God is and what he says about them, climbed out of condemnation, what will be the result in their lives? Well, John gives us a description. So let's look at this together in verse 21 and 22, the results of a heart that is free of condemnation. In verse 21, he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. All right, so we've spent a little time now thinking about what uh, or how to deal with a condemned heart. But here, John moves on to recount some of the results of a heart that's free of condemnation. He says in verse 21, so now our heart does not condemn us. So once you get to that place where your heart's no longer condemning you, what can you expect to have? Well, first, notice that this person has freedom before God. He says in verse 21, we have confidence before God. That's freedom. That's boldness. The message says it this way. And friends, once that's taken care of, and we're no longer accusing or condemning ourselves, we're bold and free before God. The uncondemned heart, the uncondemned life is bold and free before God. Now, this isn't a works-based kind of boldness, some kind of confidence in what we've done that has earned us an audience with God. No, this is grace-based boldness, isn't it, that God has given to us. None of us are standing here today amazed at our performance and how we've done in Christ. We want fruitfulness for sure to come out of our lives, and we hope that our fruitfulness is evidence of his grace in our lives, but we're standing confidently before God because of the blood of Jesus. This is how John said it in chapter 5, verse 13. He said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. But this assurance that he's talking about, this knowledge that we have eternal life, it leads us to great freedom and confidence before God. You know, God is described in the Bible as our father. He's described as the giver of the law over humanity. But for us as his people, we feel that we're under his love and his grace. We're his and he's ours. And I see this a lot of times with so many of the children that are in the church. It's clear that a lot of the kids in the church, they know exactly where they stand with their parents. You know, just watch it out on the patio after service. You'll see little kids that are coming up to their parents, just grabbing their pant legs and asking, you know, can we go get a donut in the restaurant or something like that? You know, they're, they're not hesitant, they're not fearful, they know that they have access to their parents. And then watch the older kids, you know, as they come up to their parents and no longer are they asking for donuts, but they're asking for money. And, you know, there's a freedom there. And I've seen a lot of kids in the church that laugh with their parents and joke around with their parents. And I've also noticed that a lot of times as they age, they begin to laugh at their parents. And all of that is evidence of a real feeling of freedom and safety with the parents that God has given to them. And this is one of the things that John says we have with the Lord. 
you know, when, when he takes care of that condemned heart, we feel free before the Lord. And this freedom leads to another beautiful result, a full prayer life. Notice in verse 22, John says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, when, we, when it comes to passages like these or phrases like these in the Bible, I don't like giving a bunch of qualifications because this is supposed to be something to celebrate. But the reality is that the flesh is really real, and many times people take verses like these and abuse them because of their own selfish desires. So when they read that whatever we ask, we receive from him, they begin dreaming up a life of wealth or prosperity, and they begin creating doctrines that go hand in hand with verses like these. But later, John is going to qualify this statement with statements like these, 1 John 5, 14. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So the idea is that when we're walking in the light and asking according to God's will, he's moved by our prayers. In that state, whatever you ask from him, you will receive from him because your prayers are in line with his desires. They're in line with his will. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. Some people think that what that means is that it's just another way of saying that God is gonna do whatever God is gonna do. So why even pray? Because God has a will, he has a purpose, he has a plan, it's set in stone. Why would I even cry out to him to ask him to move here on earth? No, that's not at all what John is saying. If that was the case, he wouldn't even encourage us to a life of prayer. No, what he's saying is that God has a desire, he has a will, and he has a longing for this world but he's looking for people who will pray in line with his will. And for those people, he moves on their behalf. Look, Jesus taught us to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. A lot of times Christians just skip right over that first line. But it's actually the first and primary request that colors all the others. Our desire is that God's name would be honored, esteemed, held high. And when this desire colors our prayers, God will move on our behalf. But it's not hard to imagine how the condemned heart, I'm sorry this morning, you guys. It's hard to imagine, not, it's hard, or it's easy to imagine how the condemned heart wouldn't even pray in the first place. You know, it thinks itself unworthy to go to God. But once we deal with the heart and realize we're only able to go to God because of his grace, we become free to pray. Let me give you some advice about prayer before we move on to see the next evidence or result of the uncondemned heart. One thing I'd tell you is to be honest with God. To be honest with God. Part of the reason I can say that with confidence is because of the prayer book that God himself compiled in the book of Psalms. There are many songs or psalms or prayers in the book of Psalms that start out very dark and discouraged and negative, that end up encouraged, but there actually are a handful that start discouraged and stay discouraged. They stay in the dark. They never resolve themselves or think the right or true things about God. And that tells me, because God placed them in his holy word, that God was more interested in hearing from his people than making sure that they always had the accurate idea about him when talking to him. 
Sometimes you just need to be honest with the Lord about how you're feeling or what's going on in your life. Second, make time for prayer. You know, Jesus got up early in the morning before sunrise and went out into the wilderness space to get alone with his father before the pressing needs of the day came into his life. And I I don't want to mix any words. If we're going to be people of prayer, we're going to have to make time for prayer. It's it's not going to happen by itself. This last week, I heard a story from a, a dad who was telling the story of when his children were all little in his home, and he had babies and toddlers running around and diapers and sleepless nights. And it was just a real difficult season or time in life. But what he said was, during that time in my life, I didn't have time for a big, long hour of prayer, but I would go into our bathroom and I would lock the door and I would sit on the toilet and for five minutes, I would pray to God. And he said, that was my prayer closet during that season of my life. But he made at least a little bit of time to seek the Lord. Then lastly, an advice for prayer, ask for kingdom-oriented things. Sure, ask God to provide for you, ask him to defend you, ask for strength, ask for cleansing, but don't forget to pray for the advancement of the kingdom. Pray for the church, pray for missions, pray for your pastors, pray for those that you know don't yet know Jesus. Pray for the kingdom of Christ to expand. Okay, let's look at the next thing, though, that John says is a result of a heart that's free of condemnation. Look at the end of verse 22 with me. He says, We keep his commandments and do what pleases him. This is John's description of a holy life. An uncondemned heart lives a holy life. Now make no mistake, this is is not the cause of the free heart or the full prayers. You know, I live righteously, therefore I have freedom before God or I have a strong prayer life before God. We don't pray boldly because we've been so obedient. Instead, because God is greater than our hearts and has shown us such grace, we then seek to live holy lives that glorify and honor him. It's like this, our holiness flows from his kindness. Our holiness flows from his grace. Our holiness follows his grace, which comes first. The crazy thing is, we understand this in other environments. Sometimes in the church, we don't believe it. We think, no, what we really need are threats. We, we need to hear about all the terrible things that might happen to us. You know, we need to be scared, so scared that we obey. Kind of a scared straight church edition kind of deal. But grace produces better holiness than those types of threats. I think we see this in two important environments, the home and the workplace. You know, in the home, we know that children do better when they're loved well. When a child's confident of their parents' love, they become better behaved. Since they're secure in their mother and father's care, they can receive correction without thinking that all of a sudden their parents don't love them anymore. They're confident and secure in the love of their parents. They don't have to act out to try to get somebody else's love or their parents' attention because they know they're already loved. And that love leads to better behavior. But we also see this in the workplace. You know, it's become common practice to at least believe that a positive and encouraging environment leads to a better workforce. Rather than toil under threats and condescension, workers who are praised and honored tend to put forth their best work. 
You know, if your boss is always breathing down your neck and threatening you, you're paranoid. You don't want to make a mistake. And so it keeps you from taking a risk that could benefit the organization. So we understand this in the home, and we understand this in the workplace. We should understand it in our Christian lives as well. God's love and God's favor leads his people to respond with holy lives. Paul said it like this in Titus 2, verse 11 and 12. He said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what flows from that salvation? What flows from that grace? He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the results of the heart being set free from condemnation that we saw here, man, they're really good. Confidence before God, a thriving prayer life, and personal holiness, they all flow from knowing where we stand with the Lord. And John will close this section by just giving us a specific look at what this life will kind of look like, a basic description of the uncondemned life in verse 23 and 24. So let's read that together. Verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now some of this connects to next week, but the first thing that John notes here is that life without condemnation just keeps on believing, verse 23, in the name of God's son, Jesus Christ. This will continue to be a major theme of the letter, belief in the legitimate and true Jesus, not an imposter Jesus or a less than divine Jesus or Jesus who didn't die for the sin of the world. But that's, that's why John mentioned belief in Jesus' name in verse 23. You see, for them, a name meant character and reputation, purpose and mission. In the early church, they believed in Jesus' character, purpose, mission, and nature. They believed that Jesus came from Nazareth, but they also believed that he came from heaven, that he was the Son of God, the Christ Messiah, the Savior of the world. And every single individual, every person in this room and every person on the planet must come to a place where they decide for themselves to put their trust in the name of Jesus. It's not enough to believe things about Jesus. It's not enough to know that he died on the cross for the sin of the world. You have to believe that he died for you and you have to place your faith and trust in him. You must decide that he's the only way for you to be right and renewed by God, part of his forever family. You must ask him to save you. Look at how Paul said it in Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, the name of Jesus. But the other thing that John notes is that life without condemnation keeps on loving other Christians. We just keep loving God's people. He says in verse 23, that he wrote, he wrote that we should love one another just as he commanded us. Now, John has already talked about loving other Christians. He's telling us again to love other Christians, and he's gonna spend the rest of the book telling us to love other Christians. So I'm not gonna introduce the topic like, hey, this is a brand new point. We've never considered how to love other Christians. We're just talking about it week after week after week because John is. But here's the deal. Why does John say it, say it again, and say it some more. I think it's at least in part because it's so hard. It's so hard for us to love our fellow believer. 
So let me give you a couple quick pointers on loving each other. One is this. Get into a life group or a serve team in your church. You know, in both of those environments, you get a chance to know other people more intimately, and it will give you a chance to direct your love to them. It's one thing to say, I love the church, a nameless group of people that are out there. It's another thing to say, I love Bob, I love John, I love Susan, I love these people that I'm in a life group uh, with. I don't know why they were all from the 70s. I was imagining the 70s life group there, Bob and John and Susan. Number two, be brave. Be brave. You know, when you're around your church family, try to get to know other Christians. You know, when you're picking up your kids from children's ministry, say hi to the other parents that are in line with you picking up their kids. Try to get to know them. When you're in line grabbing coffee, say hi to the person behind you. Try to get to know who they are. They're held hostage. They're in line. They can't go anywhere. They've got to get their coffee. And if you see someone eating alone in the grill, ask if you can join them or ask them if they'd like to join you. Just try to get to know somebody. Ask them their names. You say, hello, I'm so-and-so. What's your name? (laughs) We're here together for a reason. Human beings are looking for human connection. So be brave. But I think another one that I'd say is, as a general rule, give yourself buffer time on Sundays. And I realize that there are times where we have things going on that just, you know, are competing for our time and we got to race off or something after church. But if your regular uh, posture is to get to church five minutes after the service starts and to have some place that you need to be five minutes after it ends, you'll have a hard time knowing other people enough to really love them. You know, you just need a little bit of buffer time to be able to have space to say, how are you doing or who are you or what's going on in your life? All right, lastly, John talks about walking in the Spirit. Notice in verse 24, he talks about abiding in the Lord, abiding in God, keeping his commandments, that God abides in us and that the Spirit is proof of that abiding relationship with him. We'll talk about this more as the letter unfolds, but really all I wanted you to see here is that John, because he has a vision for us, he wants us to believe in Jesus, obey God, and love each other. He knows we can't do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. That we've got to walk in the Spirit if we're going to have any shot at loving each other uh, well. He said in Galatians, Paul said in Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We just have to be a people who are walking in the Spirit, drawing upon his resources so that we can live this life we're called to live. So I hope this has helped you today. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But uh, if you're anything like me, condemnation comes into your heart. Your heart begins to say things to you that are untrue or, or, or not how the Lord feels about you. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we have to go through the process of saying, that doesn't come from my Lord. And so I hope this little passage will help you with that in the years to come. So before I let you go, let me give you some applications for for all of this. You know, the the first thing we talked about was going back into your history and remembering, okay, God has put love in my heart. So here's a, a suggestion or an exercise to do. Make a list 
of the people that you've loved over the years. Make a list of the people that you've loved over the years. When your heart is telling you, you don't love anybody, you've never cared about anybody a day in your life, you can kind of go back and you just start listing, I helped this person and that person and I really do care about them and I wonder how they're doing. You know, it will help you perhaps climb out of that place of condemnation. Number two, decide to believe God more than your heart. Decide to believe God more than your heart. If, if we're saying God is greater than our heart, then we have to believe God more than we believe our own hearts. But the, I think the thing is, is that a lot of times we treat our hearts like our hearts are the ones that are infallible and without error and omniscient. But only God has those attributes. Number three, dream about the potential in other people. Okay, if, if part of God knowing all things is that he sees what you could become, he sees the truest you like he saw the truest version of Peter, if that's true about God looking into your life, then you might be helped to get to that point where you believe that by beginning to see the potential in other people. I remember when I first started walking with the Lord, there was a group of us and we were praying for different people. And one of the groups that we were praying for, I don't know if you remember these guys, but we were praying for the Beastie Boys to become Christians. Because we liked their music and we just were like, man, it, can you just imagine if they got on fire for Jesus, they would just have, they'd be such great preachers of the message, you know? So we were like praying for that because we could see the potential of what they could become. And, and when you go through that exercise, it might then translate to you and help you see how God might see you. Number four, go on a prayer walk. <laughs> go on a prayer walk. What I mean by this is get outside, go on a walk, and talk to God like you're talking to one of your best friends. Tell him what's going on in your life. And if you're uncomfortable, you know, talking out into the thin air and having people see you, if that's embarrassing, then put some headphones in and make it look like you're talking on the phone if you have to. But... Go talk with God. Unload your heart before him. Number five, dream about what revival on the Monterey Peninsula could look like. Dream about what revival on the Monterey Peninsula could look like. You see, if he says a person like this, when they pray, God hears their prayer and they have the things that they ask for. And if we're supposed to pray in line with his will, and part of his will is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we need to have a vision for how to pray for his kingdom. So what, the reason I said it this way is just imagine that in the next five years, 20,000 new converts came into the church on the Monterey Peninsula. That would be beautiful, but it would also be problematic. We wouldn't have enough pastors we wouldn't have enough square footage. We wouldn't have enough children's ministry space or workers. There, there wouldn't be, not just, I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about all the churches together on the Monterey Peninsula. We, you, so, so when you get that vision, what do you start praying for? New pastors, new laborers, new worship leaders, new disciple makers, people that God could use if you know, his kingdom expanded the way that we'd love to see it expand. Number six, pray about serving in an area of the church. Pray about serving in an area of the church. If loving each other is an important part of the Christian life, then perhaps it's time for you to think about, pray about serving in the body of Christ. A great way to do this, if you've never done this before or if it's been a long time, is to just go to calvary.com volunteer and you'll see a bunch of different ministries that are there. 
And you can inquire, you can go through the process and the ministry leaders will help you see whether you're a right fit for that ministry or not. But there's help that's always needed. So pray about it. You get to know a lot of people uh, here in the church that way. And then number seven, and lastly, think of Sunday church in an old-fashioned kind of way. Think of Sunday church in an old-fashioned kind of way. What I mean by that is that back in the day, in some cultures, churches was an all-day event. You know, the Sabbath was completely set apart for God. You know, people, a lot of times, I'm not saying you guys are like this, but I know a lot of believers today are looking for the 56-minute church service. And then they, you know, kind of get out and do their own thing throughout the rest of the day. But if you just think about it like, well, you know, maybe I'm not going to give my whole day, but a little more time to maybe eat a meal with somebody or have a conversation with somebody or grab a cup of coffee with somebody, to think about it as something that's a little longer than just the the brief, like, get in, get out kind of experience. It might help you uh, give yourself more fully to your church life. And my personal feeling is you won't regret it if you do. You'll be blessed. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.